Welcome to the Musician's Venture Podcast. This is a podcast focused on lessons learned from musicians' backstories, as well as from building successful careers in the music business. My name is Nick O'Brien, and I'll be interviewing artists and industry experts and offering insights based on events that Wisconsin Music Ventures has produced. On occasion, I'll be joined by Allison M., the founder of Wisconsin Music Ventures, as she and I will dive into topics relevant to the music industry. So let's get down to business. Hey there, musicians and music lovers. I am Nick O'Brien, and I'm thrilled to have you here for this episode of the Musician's Venture Podcast. This episode features a conversation with Nashville-based female pop artist, songwriter, and producer, Ivory Lane. I met Ivory earlier this year before she played a So Far Sound show in Milwaukee, and I knew within a couple minutes of interacting with her that I wanted to have her on the podcast because her personality was so engaging and really fun to banter with. I hadn't even seen her perform or heard her music when I had asked her to be on the podcast, but then moments later she took the stage and delivered an incredibly unique set. Her beautiful voice and artistry combined with her raw and quirky personality just captivated everyone in the audience, including me. So I was hooked. And in the days after that show, I learned more about Ivory's music and the arc of her career to this point, which is the story of an artist who discovered her interests and talents in music as a young child, and not only experimented with those interests and talents, but also invested and developed them with a strong community of support around her. And that caught the attention of a Grammy Award-winning producer, which led to her skipping college and moving to Nashville right out of high school. She's since been a continually emerging pop star in Nashville, across the U.S., as well as in the U.K. Since 2014, Ivory has released a collection of nearly 30 different EPs and singles. In 2022 alone, she independently wrote, produced, and released four EPs and one single, each of which told more of her story as an artist, writer, and a human, while solidifying her mark as a true creative triple threat. She's toured with the likes of Matt Nathanson, Andy Grammer, Ben Rector, and The Script, and has had several songs land highly coveted spots on BBC Radio 2's playlists. To date, Ivory has more than 70,000 monthly listeners on Spotify, with a few of her songs having several million listens Aside from her own solo projects, her songwriting and music production skills have led to collaborations with stellar casts of the finest writers and producers in Nashville and London. She's also worked on global ad campaigns for companies such as the cable giant HBO. And while Ivory's music talents are vast and her resume in the industry is impressive, it's her personality and perspective that shines brightest in this interview. Over the course of the conversation, her and I talk about how we met at her first SoFar show in Milwaukee, how she took a step back from her own project after a busy 2022, and she talks about transitioning back into a focus on her own music. She expresses her love for Wisconsin, all things cheese, and really kind of all things dairy. She talks about the few shows she's played in Wisconsin, and she promises to come back. She reflects on her parents having music and writing talents being an important influence on her getting interested in making music as a young child, which also led to her becoming an avid journaler and songwriter since she was about six years old. We talk about when and how she got started putting her music on SoundCloud as a teenager and why that was a fun experience for her because of the opportunities it provided for her to get feedback from people she didn't know and because it allowed her to do writing and production and artistry on a semi-professional level. She explains that her skill development has been more experiential than formal, and how her involvement in a lot of different co-writes has been helpful to her learning the production side of the industry. She talks about her experience working with artists, producers, and other industry professionals in the UK. She shares her experience with and her perspective on the business side of being a musician and how she handles that part of her career. We dive into an interesting intersection of her personal life and her career in that one of her sisters, Madeline, is also her manager. She explains how that came to be, 
and the professional and personal growth journey they've been on together, and the importance of their relationship on her career. She shares her experiences with being a female in the music industry, which has been challenging when it comes to the production and marketing aspects. And she was eager to talk about her relationship with social media over the course of her career and how its negative impact on her prompted adjustments to her social media strategy to benefit her mental health and overall well-being. We chat briefly about the presence of artificial intelligence in the music industry and her take on AI's place in the realm of creativity. Ivory is known for being sharp in the writer's room, so naturally I was curious to learn how she thinks about songwriting and what she does to not only stay sharp, but continually improve that skill set. We talk about the song you'll hear after this interview. It's called Scratch, and that was part of the first EP she independently released in 2022, and it's an expression of how she was feeling after stepping away from an artist development company she had been working with for six years. And then our conversation ends with Ivory sharing that she wants everyone to keep going after their dreams and goals. She also encourages you to send her postcards and write her letters because she loves interacting with people that way. You can find her P.O. Box address on her website. Now, considering her journey as a musician to this point, there were clearly plenty of reasons I wanted to have Ivory on the podcast. I was curious to learn more about her story and zoom into specific parts of it because I had a feeling there would be valuable insights, advice, and inspiration for other musicians to benefit from. And my initial intrigue when meeting Ivory was spot on. Her personality definitely made for an engaging podcast interview. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with rising pop star Ivory Lane. Ivory Lane, it's so good to see you. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. It's good to see you, Nick. I know we were just talking about last time we saw each other, it was bone-chilling cold. Yes, it and was. And now it is balmy summertime. It's not quite balmy yet in Wisconsin, but I'm sure it's different. You're in Nashville right now, I assume. That's very true, and it is quite balmy. It's yeah. quite warm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Ivory, you and I crossed paths uh, rather serendipitously at a So Far Milwaukee show back in January. I think I walked up to you and was like, hey, do you know who's playing tonight? And you were like, me. <laughs> That's right. And I heard the entertainment was crazy. Yeah. And then you proceeded to not only blow me away, but blow everyone else away in that room. Uh, it was an incredible performance. And I was hooked from the get-go. Not just on your music either. You have a very vibrant engaging and endearing personality, or at least that's what I've gotten from my first two interactions with you. Thank you so much. Tell that to my sibling. Okay. (laughs) Just kidding. I love them. They love them. But thank you so much. That that show was really special because I believe it was my first so far show in Milwaukee. In anywhere, actually, my first so far show. And so I really didn't know what to expect. And I was very, very, very nervous. And I felt like it was the crowd was so welcoming and it was such a fun gig. And it was my first time really trying out that loop pedal live, um, the TC Helicon Voice Live Extreme 3, my little advert. I couldn't have asked for a better first show. Everyone was so welcoming and kind. And, and again, it was a blast. So I'm glad that was where we met. Yeah, me too. I took in the experience that night, but I'm that guy that always just like takes videos at shows. And then really never does anything with them. But sometimes, particularly for the podcast, like I'll be like, oh, yeah, I saw that person one time. And so for the last 30 minutes, I've just been going through all the videos from that night. And when you did Algorithm with the Looper, oh, my gosh, that was incredible. You blew me away. So thank you for that experience. And thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. I'm eager to help the Wisconsin music community and and the Musicians Ventures listeners get to know you, Ivory Lane. So let's start with just what is life right now for you? Like, what are you focused on? I was on your website and there there aren't any show dates listed. So I'm guessing you're like in a writing or a recording period. Just kind of give us a, the the high level view of what life is like right now for you. Well, thank you so much, Nick. 
life right now has looked the strangest it's ever looked for me in like my decades worth career because for the first time for the past couple months I took a creative step back for my project so I was still writing for other artists and in rooms with other artists but I think after the volume of things that I did last year I released four four track EPs and an additional single that I wrote myself, produced myself, and then released. So it was, you know, creating the album artwork and promoting it on socials and all of the things that when I got around to this year, I played a handful of shows at the beginning of the year where I met you. And I think the last show I did was in March in my hometown of Charlotte. And then after that, I just was like, I, I need a break. I'm actually not even feeling creative for this project. So I've been, again, working with other artists, working with other people's stuff. But for me, I took a step back and I'm only just now getting back into the groove, dusting off the rust for myself. So it's been like a really interesting last couple of months that I think I needed. Well, I'm so happy that you had that time for yourself and to kind of recharge, maybe get uh, re-inspired. I'm eager to see what comes of that little like retreat. Good luck to you too as you uh, amp things back up again. I'll be excited to see, especially when you're back in Wisconsin, Everett. Have you only just played that one show in Wisconsin? Oh my gosh, I love Wisconsin. Number one, I love cheese. And I'm not trying to just like blanket statement the whole thing, but I love any dairy product in general. But I loved being in Wisconsin. I had played in Madison twice. A good friend of mine, Andrew McMahon, he his project, Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness, I opened for him twice in Madison. And they were my favorite. They were my favorite shows of the whole tour. I loved everyone. Mm-hmm. I loved it all. But those shows in particular. And then I played that Milwaukee show. And I, I don't remember. Did we do another one in Wisconsin? But I had played there before. I just didn't have that much context. And I had never done, again, uh, an iteration where it was just me by myself with a loop pedal. Um, So that was kind of like a fresh take of a Wisconsin live show. But I will be back because I'm obsessed with the Midwest. I don't know what it is about y'all, but you're just you're so kind and lovely. And I will be back for sure. I'm I'm looking out at uh, some shows for the rest of the year. So I you will be on my list, Nick. I will be telling you when it's happening. Please. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited. Yes. And if you haven't played an outdoor show in Wisconsin in the summer, I would highly, highly, highly recommend it. That's what you were talking about when we we were talking about shows and we're talking about a festival and all that kind of stuff. That's definitely on the radar and we'll keep everybody updated on socials, which is another thing that I know we'll talk about later. Yeah, we'll get into that. Something exciting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. (laughs) So now that we know what life is like for you right now, let's go back to the beginning. So yeah. your website says that you you started toying around on your family's piano when you were six. It's pretty early. So, you know, why did you start playing on the piano? And like, did you grow up in a musical family? Were there influences or, or outside of your family? And, and who were those? And just like, you know, tell us the story of how six-year-old Ivory ended up in front of me right now. Absolutely. So I do come from a very, very musical family. It was my dad's piano in the house that I always played around on. And my dad is just a phenomenal vocalist, phenomenal piano player. He doesn't really write songs. He's more of a performance guy, but he is just light years even more talented than I. He does a lot of things by ear, though. He learned classically how to read music, but he mainly plays everything by ear. So I got that from him. I don't read music either. And so I just started kind of, you know, hearing things and trying to emulate them on the piano and then trying to create songs. My mother, on the other hand, she can sing beautifully as well, but she would say music is not really her strong suit. She's a words girl. So growing up, she would, you know, write those birthday invites for us that rhyme she's really big into poems apparently she wrote poems for my dad when they were dating always written beautiful letters for my birthday beautiful letters when we got in fights in my teenage years and then she'd be like here's why i'm trying to set a boundary with you (laughs) like my mom has just always had a beautiful way with words so i think it was really both of them in equal parts 
instilling a love of words and a love of music in me that just naturally brought me to a place of writing songs. I have been doing that since I was six, which is weird to say. They haven't been great. You know, I wasn't a prodigy, I don't think, but um, I grew up around also a very supportive family. So even though my songs probably weren't the best at a young age, they were always like, that sounds amazing. Keep going. I love it. So I was an avid journaler and I was an avid songwriter from age six. And then on, I just never, never gave it up. So when did you start putting music out and gigging? You know, when did you start like putting what you were making out there in front of the world? Yeah, I think at a pretty normal formative age, that 14, 15 years old range was when I was like, okay, maybe I can start sharing these songs with people outside of my family. So it started at my church where my family and I, I don't know if you're familiar with the Advent candle, but we were like doing a Christmas presentation about the Advent candle or something. And we had the candle of love. So I wrote a song about that and played it at my church's services. And people were like, oh, you can write music. And that kind of gave me the confidence to start, you know, playing in front of my school friends and then playing in front of more of our community until I got to a point where I naturally got into music production via garage band. And probably around 15, 16 was when I was posting stuff on SoundCloud. And that became a really fun outlet for me to get feedback from people that I had never met before in my life and had never known me. So there was no context or a nice bless your heart of oh that sounds amazing and they're just saying that because they love my parents so that was when probably I started putting music out even though it wasn't streaming or professionally out SoundCloud was definitely my first window into doing production writing artistry in general on a semi-professional level so you mentioned this being a pretty formative age when you're doing this and you're putting your music out Mm -hmm. for feedback that is it's not like coded with any sort of emotional you know relationship with you right what was that process like for you internally like going through that as a as a teenager and maybe not hearing the best of things or maybe you heard a bunch of great things I, just what was that like getting feedback and being vulnerable at such an early part of your life and your career oh my gosh it was so great because again, it introduced me to more creatives. Also, you know, I was still living at home. I was, you know, 15, 16 again, and my parents were pretty strict about internet rules. So it wasn't like I was constantly on there all the time. And I got to, you know, I didn't have a ton of conversations with people on SoundCloud, but the comments that I was getting and being able to see mainly what was probably the most informative to me was you could timestamp your comments on the waveform. So people could just pick the part of the song that they loved and comment at that juncture. So I could know exactly what people were liking, which is a really cool feature. I don't know if SoundCloud still does that, but that was the most helpful part to me because I started to see kind of a little bit of trends of what people were liking most about what songs. Like I think someone commented once like, this is great, but I can hear the click in it. It was a very subtle click that happened when I chopped a, an audio track and I looped it so that it was picking up that clip, I never would have gotten that. So it just helped me further tighten up those skills at a very rudimentary level because, I mean, it's garage band. I hadn't made that transition into Logic and those more heavy DAWs yet, but definitely helped me be more attuned to what I was doing people were generally very nice. No one was super duper mean to me. Um, so that was nice. Good. But it helped. It helped me learn. Sure, sure. Did you have technical training in, in either the production or the technical parts of music and the singing and the playing? And if so, at what point did that kind of happen? And like, when did you start to really zero in on, okay, I'm going to invest in music and my skill sets as it relates to having a career in that? That's a great question. I think vocally, I had the advantage of, you know, being raised by a dad who was an excellent vocalist. So he was always giving me tips, tricks, that kind of stuff. I never did any formal training. Like I took lessons one year in high school, but it ended up me going to my vocal instructor and being, listen to this song I wrote. And we did a breathing exercise once. Like it wasn't, it wasn't anything. 
that I feel like probably I use today. But I would say my dad is the most influential kind of voice on voice, if you will. Mm-hmm. Piano is my main instrument. I play a little bit of guitar and I did a light dusting of, you know, lessons, but I play by ear. So I was very impatient in those. So I eventually just kind of petered out. Production has been something that I was really, really blessed to have been connected with a really great producer in Nashville. His name's Ed Cash, great guy. And he kind of discovered me in high school, junior year. So I was around 17 years old. And he had heard some things that I was doing on SoundCloud through a mutual friend and was like, this girl is so quirky. I've got to meet her. So what he really did is he brought me under his wing and mentored me. So I would go into his studio and be surrounded by his interns who were Belmont students and be learning not only from him, who has so much experience, but also from these college age students who are a little bit older than me. And because of that kind of style of learning, which is more of an apprenticeship, which I'm a huge believer in, I ended up not going to college. My plan was to go to Belmont, which is a a really popular music school here in Nashville. I just didn't feel the need to shell out the money to do that when I had all of these resources in front of me with these interns and at cash. So I was definitely mentored into Logic and again, those higher level DAWs. And from then on, everything else was self-taught and absorbed from all of the co-writes that I did with different producers. I started to really target, hey, when I do co-writes, there has to be a producer in the room. I want there to be a producer in the room. And I would, you know, be engaged in writing a song, but I would be watching what they were doing. You know, what does Pro Tools look like? What does Ableton look like? What's that plugin? Should I invest in getting that preset? Like just being able to be around in the atmosphere of producers that I wanted to be like or that I really admired helped me more than words can say. So it's been very experiential, I guess you could say. No formal training, but I have felt like I've had a good supportive community of people to reach out to and ask questions. Yeah, that's awesome. It does kind of, you know, prove some validity to the notion that it's not necessarily about what you know, it's about who you know and then like how you can learn from them, right? And mm-hmm. surround yourself with people who are smarter and better than you are and ultimately you'll become just like them, right? Um, so that's awesome. It's a great part of your story. And I liked the boldness that you had of coming out of high school, you're seeing this angle as this could be the direction I'm going to go. And then just like picking up and moving to Nashville, right? That's exactly what happened. Yeah. Yeah. After I got discovered, I was like, well, there's nowhere else I want to go. This sounds great. And my parents were very comfortable with that was the that was the closest option. It was either that or like LA. Mm-hmm. So that was a no. <laughs> it was very natural. But then you you took an even bigger step. You know, it's not just like, you know, North Carolina where you grew up to to L.A., but North Carolina to Nashville. And now you do a good amount of work in the U.K., right? Oh, my gosh. I love the U.K. Yeah. Love so the U.K. Well, I mean, I've always been a fan of U.K. pop artists, especially like Marina and the Diamonds, Lawrence and the Machine, obviously Adele, just the way that the UK treats pop art in and of itself, production, the aesthetic, everything. So it's always been a goal to collaborate out of the UK. But I just, I had a song that got on a playlist on Spotify that did moderately well. And at the time, the team I was working with, they were like, well, is there anybody you want to work with over there? And I just started working with some producers out there. And then it just became a love affair of riding over there and taking the tube to all the different co-writes and studios. And then that led to, you know, seeing if we could kind of make a dent in the the radio over there. And so I've had a couple songs played on BBC Radio 2, which was a huge, huge, like out of left field surprise to me. I mean, obviously we had someone promoting it, so it wasn't a like surprise, surprise. But I I was so grateful that the producers over there at those shows on BBC Radio 2, they really just loved the music that I was giving them and gave me a shot knowing that I was an independent artist. I didn't have a label backing me at all. And I also like didn't have the coin to fly over there whenever they would play it. So I, I couldn't like promote it or play shows, but they just would play it on their stations. And it's been such a gift and, and really 
fun. So I'm excited to get back over there soon. No certain plans just yet, but the UK is probably always going to be a part of my career. That's amazing. Well, I'm happy that you've had that experience and they loved your music because your music is awesome. <laughs> it's an eclectic mix of awesome sounds and your beautiful voice. And then your, your songwriting is so, it's fun. It's, it's quirky, but it, it kind of hits hard too. Like, you know, we'll get into to the song that listeners will hear after this conversation, but that one, you know, there's a meaning in it. It's very, it's poppy, it's catchy, but there's clearly a meaning if you, you follow along with the lyrics. And so, you know, your music is great. No doubt about that. But there comes a point, you know, especially with as quickly as things were happening for you, where the business side of the music becomes really important. And there are some key decisions, I'm sure, that you've had to face that, you know, going at that alone with no experience, you could have made a wrong decision and maybe it wouldn't have worked out the way that it has. Like, how, how has your experience been just interacting and handling the business side of the music industry? Are you one of those artists who just wants to focus on the creative or do you want to dabble a little bit more on the business side as well? Just take me through where the business falls into your music career. Well, I've never been asked that question in all the interviews I've done. And I think it's such a good question because whoever's listening to this podcast right now, you know, might need to hear, I needed to hear this probably a couple of years ago, but I do think it is so important no matter if you feel like you've got a head for business or you're like, I'm just a creative and that's all I want to do. I think it's important to have some sort of knowledge of the music industry, even though it is ever-changing. It's always in flux. I think it's important to know your surroundings and the marketplace because it's your work and it's a version of you going out there. And so you have to protect that. Like you, you have to own it. And I do think it's important to have people that you trust on your team. It's important to know when you're like, this is not a strong suit of mine. So I need to have someone else do this with me. But at the end of the day, taking ownership over your career, there is business involved. It sucks. I don't enjoy the business business side of it that much, but I love people. So I love connecting with people and I love like taking meetings and talking big picture. Like that's never been, oh crap, I've got a meeting today. Like that, that stuff excites me. I think what has changed for me and I have to give myself grace with this. You know, I started at such a young age. I got professionally involved in music when I was 17, 18 years old. And so I was very, very much like, well, I'm young and I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm just going to have people in charge of my career. And I think like, that's what I needed to do at that time. I was a kid and I wasn't familiar with the inner workings of the music industry. But I think it took me way too long to get to a point of taking ownership of my career and going, no, 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 this is what I want to do. And at the end of the day, this is my life. You only get one. And if I keep doing the same things that I'm not enjoying, I'm not liking, I don't feel like it's putting me in the right direction to where I want to go, then why am I, why am I doing this? Why am I allowing other people to convince me to do this? And so it's only been the last two years, I would say, where I finally was like, I'm taking ownership of what this is. I'm going to steer this ship. Even if it goes down, you know, like at least I'll know that I was going for it, you know, and I wasn't sitting on the sidelines really discontented with my life and with my career. So yeah, to answer your question, I think it's inevitable to, to be involved in the business. I think it's figuring out what works for you. And at the end of the day, always reminding yourself, like, what am I doing this for? I think motive is so important and powerful. Or who am I doing it for? You know, whatever. But also, you know, where am I going? Just always checking back in and not being afraid if that changes. It changed for me and that scared me. Some of the little intricacies changed for me and that scared me. I thought, like, I'm on the wrong path. Hold on. But the main goal has never changed, which is I want to be like a worldwide successful artist that just 
instills hope in people that listen to me. So how can I do that best? So yeah, that would be my final answer. <laughs> Perfect. And you've gotten that help on the business and management side from somebody mm -hmm. that you had a good relationship with prior to making the decision. <laughs> and can you take me through just like the makings of, of how your sister has become your manager? Oh my gosh. I love that we're talking about this. So first of all, I have two sisters. I don't want to not name the other one. Mary, I love you very much. Mary's my younger sister. She's also my nail tech. She's a makeup artist. She's beautiful, wonderful, amazing. She will be on tour with me one day. But Madeline is my older sister. And I live with Madeline in Nashville. We have a dog together, Milo, where she's my best friend. Like we're tight. But growing up, Madeline was always, she still is so intelligent. And so we all thought she was going to go into the medical field. So she graduates two years before me, goes off to college to pursue medicine, and then like not even the end of the first year. And she's like, this is not what I want to do. And at that point, things were starting to bubble with me and meeting people in Nashville. I'm like, this is what I want to do. Music, let's go. And she calls me one day and I'll never forget it. I was in my dad's office. <laughs> she's like, this sounds weird, but... I don't think I want to do anything in the medical field. I want to work with you. Like, I want to manage you. I want to, is that something that you want? I was just baffled that she would even want to do that. And it did feel a very flattering weight of, oh my gosh. So she is tying her dream in with mine. And we weren't always able to work together like on a professional, professional level, like there were some years, you know, she's finishing school. And so she couldn't come to all the shows or whatever, but we've always been working together from that point. And I think having her as a part of my team is amazing to me just because there's such a level of trust there. Trust that she's never going to screw me over because that's not the kind of person she is, but also trust in she's the only person that can call me on my bullshit everybody else you know tends to tell artists what they want to hear and madeline will call me out if i am being a little bit of an arse sorry i realized i'm like i don't know if i'm allowed to swear on this but you can, <laughs> you can okay. swear yeah i i i have had some swear worthy attitudes and she keeps me grounded and reminds me like, you're talented and I believe big things for you, but that never means that you can compromise the way that you treat others. So I'm really grateful to have that in my corner. Yeah, that's amazing. Oh, so there's a few things I want to dive into on that topic. Okay. Ready to dive. Seems like you uh, were enjoying the opportunity to talk about the presence of Madeline in, in your music career. Well, it's also cool that your your younger sister too, Mary, is also involved. It's like a, a family affair here. That's very, very cool. And aligns perfectly with what you had said at the beginning of your story with just being around a very supportive community and family. So you said, you know, Madeline's a very smart woman. What was the process like uh, of witnessing her try to kind of learn the music industry and kind of become, in some ways, a little bit of a bulldog that you need a manager to be, you know? Kind of like you got to be sharp and, and kind of strict with the artist's time and things like that. So what's that process been like for you just kind of witnessing her come into that role in a, an effective way? Oh, man. I mean, we've grown so much together. So to speak to, to what I was saying earlier about my kind of evolution to getting to a point of saying, OK, time to take ownership and not just do things because people are telling me it's what I should do if my gut is saying something other than. Madeline has grown into that, I feel like, along with me, because any show that I would do, she would go with me after she graduated from college. I mean, like any show I did, she was there no matter how crappy, no matter how far away. She's often the one driving and helping me load in the gear. Well, she tour manages me as well. So we would go through these situations together where we literally had to grow together. We go together, we grow together. So if there was a really bad gig where we mishandled something, like, I don't know, just a weird scenario, the drive back home, we are talking about it in the car. Here's what we could have done better. Here's whatever. And I have seen her grow into her confidence, 
especially again, it's been like the last couple years for the both of us, just both coming into our own and being like, we got this. We can do this. Because I think too, when you work with your sibling, you're always looking at them like they're young because they're your sibling. And I am her younger sister. So I think we always have kind of looked at each other as just kids in the industry. But I'm like, actually, I am nearing 30 and you are 30. So if we're not going to own this now and start making big moves, then when are we ever going to? So I've seen her kind of open up and take ownership of this dream for her because it's my dream too. But like her dream is hers as a part of this team. So that's been really, really cool to do that together. That's not a conventional manager artist relationship. And I think that's something special. Right. And also just the genesis of it in itself. Like, I think most people would assume that if they knew that your manager was your sister, that it was you who kind of Mm -hmm. drug her into it versus her coming to you and saying, no, like, I see a dream for myself, too. And it's a part of your dream. That's so cool, Ivory. So cool. Thank you. I think it is, too. It's good to be reminded of that. Yeah. And if you're comfortable talking about that in this kind of perspective of you're a female artist in the industry being managed by a female and how that experience has been, because I don't know exactly what it's like in Nashville, but I think at a large scale, it can be difficult as a female in the industry. There's all kinds of discriminatory cultures and strategies and that some of which we're aware of and people are being intentional about and some people are just kind of subconsciously do it. How have you been able to interact with that? How have how has Madeline been able to interact with that? Just what are your thoughts in general on, you know, the female artists or just the female in general in the music industry and where things stand right now from your perspective? Oh man. Well, I want to say that when I got started, pretty much everybody that opened a door for me or believed in me was a man. So I would not ever, you know, venture to say that or make a blanket statement that men have just been like, you know, rubbish to me, haven't given me chances or only, you know, open the door for me because I'm a beautiful woman. Like there really haven't been the nightmare stories that are true and do happen. So I want to start by acknowledging that because I'm really grateful to the men in my career and like the band I toured with all dudes, like love them. I will say though, in trying to make a name for yourself as a woman, it is quite daunting, especially when you're presenting something that does not check all of the boxes of a conventional female pop artist. I think in Nashville, pop is already something that people are like, "Mm." I would identify with being a pop artist. Some people are like, well, you're kind of country too with your last EP. I'll take whatever. But just, I love pop music and that's what I feel like I create. I do think that sometimes women can be pigeonholed into, okay, you need to look conventionally, breathtakingly gorgeous and just have a pretty voice and the songwriting i feel like there's been more of a push of having women in songwriting be promoted just like even julia michaels is the first and casey musgraves i mean those are two really strong songwriters who happen to be women that's the thing it's like songwriters who happen to be women you know they're just as great but production has been honestly the main thing that I feel like people couldn't understand or grasp when I would say, hey, I really like to produce my own music. So when we work together, I'd like for that to be collaborative. It took a while for me to get to a place where I could be confident enough to say, I don't like that. Can I please like get in here in the weeds with you and, you know, put some tracks in there myself? Just because I think people in Nashville like weren't used to seeing a woman producing, which is odd because there definitely are women who produce. So I think like the production element has been a little challenging because it's just not what people expect. I don't know. That's just, that's always been the one where the most uncomfortable situations have been then because it's like, oh, well, why are you, why are you talking about the track? Like you helped write it or you sang or whatever. And I'm like, I want to do, I want to be involved in it all. Cause to me, it's all a song. You can't have a song without production, writing a vocal. If I, I want to be involved in all of it. 
But yeah, it has been hard to fight for that element, the production element. And again, just with people going, who is Ivory Lane? If what, how can I associate with her? Because I'm, I'm not an influencer look, even though I think I'm very cute. That's not what I'm trying to sell here. I'm not trying to sell like sex. I'm not trying to sell like some sort of unattainable. I am your average girly. I would say my music is above average and that's what I'm trying to market to you. So that's been hard is finding a place in the marketing side of things where it doesn't feel like people are just like sweeping you into a box. That has been challenging for sure. Yeah, well, that kind of sets up the next thing I wanted to dive into, which is, you know, you had asked that we talk about social media and social media's impact on artists. And obviously that is in the marketing realm. And so mm-hmm. as you and Madeline both have kind of come into your own and, and, and you're trying to uh, make a name for Ivory Lane through marketing tactics, how has social media been an influence in that? And just like, what are your thoughts in general? Yes. I love that you were, that you asked to talk about this. I'm like, I absolutely did. So social media is so interesting to me. The year that I really got into music was around 2013. And I remember Instagram was like the little sprinkles on top of the cake of what you were doing. It was just an extra way to engage with fans that maybe couldn't come to shows or help some fans come to shows, but it was not the end all be all of being an artist. I mean, people were talking about like, what do you want your music video to be like? And what show are you doing next? It really wasn't, what are, what are you posting on Instagram? And in the beginning too, I remember having a team around me who the trend at the time was be as mysterious as possible on Instagram. Like even if you're just posting a picture of like your feet in the studio, like <laughs> so people know you're in a studio, but they're not like seeing your face or what you look like or what you're doing. It was all about mystique and intrigue and stuff. And I'm like, great. Easy, I can do that. And I do love that social media is free monetarily, but I don't think it is free. I think it comes at a cost and the cost is somewhere different. So as time progressed, we've all seen it. Social media has become, it's marketed as the only way to be successful as an artist right now, as a music artist. It's the way that labels are approaching fresh talent. It's the way that, I mean, I've gotten many songwriting sessions booked with TikTok stars and stars on the rise. And it's opening up opportunities for touring. Booking agents are looking at your numbers on socials. So it became a must. And that is Oh, it, that has just opened such a can of worms for me that I didn't realize it was opening until it got to the point where my mental health was in the toilet, or as we would say in the South, the toilet. Um, and I needed to take a step back. I think my first break was in 2021, and I was off of social media for three months. And then a song of mine got on BBC Radio 2. And obviously, I was really excited about that and needed to get back on there, thank the producers, do the thing. And then you got to get back into it and, you know, see if you can get another week and promote some more and you're interacting with new fans. And so then it happens again on the social media train again. And then last year I did probably the most social media I'd ever done. I was trying to do the three TikToks a day thing, which does not keep the doctor away, probably (laughs) brings the doctor around quicker. But I, I was doing that and making reels and because I was putting out an EP every other month. So I needed people to listen to it and I needed, you know, to generate some audience and some buzz and a thing happened. Like there was a TikTok that kind of sort of had some traction, but it was me mouthing a soundbite from SpongeBob, I'm pretty sure, talking about wearing a jumpsuit. Like when you go to the restroom and you wear a jumpsuit, you're half naked on the toilet was like, it's very vulnerable and terrifying. That was the thing that people were like, love it, great. Like, you're kidding me. No music. So after that, I was like, I need to take a break. So I took a little break at the end of last year, which then led me to reevaluate how I was going to approach social media this year, which has been like fun and interesting and 
all the things to navigate, which I don't know. How do you want to jump into this question? Do you want to talk about what I'm doing this year or yeah, what are your like, thoughts? Yeah, well, as a baseline, and I, I hate to use any sort of like quantitative metrics, right? I just kind of want to set the oh, table. But you got it. Right, right. So you have like 70,000 plus monthly listeners on Spotify. Right. About 10,400 followers on Instagram. About 1,100 on TikTok. Okay. So what does that all mean? (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, sure. So what does that all mean? Like, I guess as someone who's not super into social media marketing, I'm more like word of mouth, you know, kind of in-person type stuff. And seeing that there's 70,000 monthly listeners on Spotify and 60,000 fewer followers on Instagram, like, how does that connect? How does that correlate? Like, are you getting that technical with things of like, okay, we have 70,000 people a month that listen to us. Why are there 60,000 of them that aren't following me on Instagram or on TikTok or whatever? It's insane. It doesn't make sense to me. Like, I don't understand the transference of social platforms and streaming platforms because a lot of people are seeing it with like, okay, great. You have so ever many followers on socials. Like if your socials are higher than your Spotify numbers, the social numbers don't guarantee you that those fans are coming to an actual show. So they don't always translate as like a monetary number that could do some good and not like those numbers can't do good. Here's the thing for me. I am a people person. I'm an introvert, but I'm a social introvert. So love me, a good convo. I love meeting new people. And I love my fans. I know every artist says that, but I probably would have quit so many times, (laughs) so many years, if it had not been for letters and notes and messages from fans. So to me, a fan is not one of those social media numbers, or at least I feel like they've been taken out of what the meaning of that number is. To me, what social media became was a way to guarantee that you were successful so that a label can sign you on without any risk involved. So say I had like a million followers or whatever on Instagram. Just wait. Um, but <laughs> a, million, a million a million followers on Instagram. <sighs> and um <laughs> that in a label's mind, in a booking agent's mind, in a lot of people's mind, they're like, great, that translates to she's got all I have to do is just pour a little extra yeah. money in there, and this is sure to be successful. And I think what that overlooks is numbers do not equate experience. Like followers do not equate experience, skill set, the ability to handle what the same number means. So when you take someone, especially someone who is young, I think about when I started and I was 17, if things had gone the way that I had hoped and dreamt they had, I don't think I would be doing music right now. Even though I probably still would have loved it, I think the industry would have burnt me out because I was not sure of who I was. And I was not sure of all the giftings that I had. Like what I was saying before, those years of coming into your own, I think I really needed to go through that and it has served me so well to if we got to a point tomorrow where someone was like, we want you to open for Florence and the machine over in the UK, I would be like terrified out of my mind and probably have some sort of like gastrointestinal distress, but I would be so ready. I would be so ready. I would feel like I've got the muscle memory there to not only play a set that I feel like would be engaging, but to be able to handle and compartmentalize what being on a stage in front of people means and what being a human means. I think social media, because everything is happening on a screen, it's taking so much of the humanity out of what art is. And talking about uh, social media is free, like it's free advertising. No, it's not. You have to pay social media in time. You also have to pay it in energy. So the problem that I kept having is that I'm such a people person. People are like, you're hilarious. You're like Midge Maisel, wah, wah, which I love the marvelous Miss Maisel. So I was like, kiss me on the mouth. That's the greatest compliment you could give me. So I was like, love this. But 
I would try to do like funny, quippy things on socials and they never like landed or they just wouldn't go anywhere. And then I would feel exhausted because that took me like 30 takes to get that right. Or, you know, you'd play a cover, play the whole thing and realize, oh, there's like a booger hanging out my nose. Can't post that. I'm going to have to go and do that again. And then you hit it again. You forgot you hit the note wrong. It takes so many tries. You know, it's hilarious. You laugh about it. You're, you know, but it started to get to a point too, where I was experiencing like mild body dysmorphia because I was used to seeing like me flipped because when you're looking at your phone, it's flipped and you'd see yourself with filters. And I got really into a season of like being really conscious about my body and like what I was eating in a not healthy way, in a very like anxious way. And I think because of the way my personality translates and the music that I write, people like would not have thought that of me. And so it got to a point where I was like crying every time I had to do something for socials, which was every day. And then I have a job outside of music to like pay my bills so that I have to go to work and on my break, be like, okay, what do I got to post and what do I have to write? So it became totally not about the fans and all about, hey, this is not working for me. And if it's not working for me, how am I going to make music that actually not even works, but is just good that I believe in that is talking about things that are important to me. And that's why this year in my kind of interim break of taking a couple steps back, I started toying with the idea of like, what if I just went for it music wise? and just started, you know, asking people around town for help and started gigging again and putting myself out there and just really giving it my all. But I never make a lick of content and just see what happens. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. So I'm in my hustle. I'm in my relentless season, but I cannot tell you how much better mentally I feel. That was terrible grammar, but I do feel like it's been a night and day difference the capacity to handle what being an artist is and also having to pay rent and think on the fly and come up with things last minute, I would not be able to do it if I was creating content. So that was a big jumble of words, but that's where I am right now with social media and what I think about it. I want everyone to hear me when I say, I don't think it's bad. I don't think you should get off social media. I just think Artists should not be forced into sharing everything about themselves, creating a persona, being on a screen every day, multiple times a day in order to be successful. Because then I think you're not being a successful artist, you're being a successful product. So, yeah, that's my stamp on that, that subject. Well, thank you for sharing your perspective, because I think of there's course. a lot of artists who have experienced and probably still are experiencing a lot of what you experienced. And mm -hmm. I'm so thankful that you noticed that and did what you had to do in making a decision to step back and that you're doing well now and that you have more clarity and creativity and, and fire that is ivory. Do you have any quick thoughts on AI? Because we just did oh a gosh. position meetup yesterday on this topic. And boy, oh boy, there was some discourse for sure. So like, what are your thoughts on, on like this influence of AI? Are you talking about AI as in generated songs, like the AI songwriters and generating words? And... The way that I've kind of categorized it in my mind, at least is like, there's an operational side of AI, mm -hmm. you know, so like ChatGPT for like content and, you know, automating data collection and, and, and stuff like that. And then there's like the creative aspect of it, where it's like, you're using it to make visual content, you're using it to make music, you're using it to make loops and beats and things like that. So that's how I've categorized it, I guess. I don't know if you think about it that way, or you have different opinions on either of those two categories, or if you just have one opinion on the whole realm that is AI. Sure, I'm probably not the person to get on a soapbox about AI, because I don't know that much about it. But from what I've heard, the conversations I've had in rights with people being like, I've heard about, you know, AI writing songs. And I also write copy for a company. And, you know, we have had some experience with reading things from is it chat, GBT or whatever it is. And I'm like, what, what is, 
I'm just not a fan of replacing humans when it comes to creativity. I know you can argue that words don't always have to be quote unquote creative, but I do think that language is creative. And I, I think you can't take humanity out of art. So if a human is not making the art or creating it, then you can't call it art. That's just like my personal opinion about AI. And I'm not even that concerned about it, which is probably naive, but I'm like, you got to feel an experience in order to make art. And I just, what is that in AI? <laughs> Where is that? It's just empty. But you know what? I love a good sci-fi film. I love a good sci-fi TV series. But yeah, that's, that's my thoughts on AI. Very like super fish probably, but. Okay, cool. Well, thanks for sharing. Of course. So let's dive back into the music side of stuff and yeah. talk about the songwriting. You're known for being, I think the quote on your website is sharp in the writer's room. Where did that come from? And is there a similar source for inspiration for songwriting? Is it something that comes just kind of in waves or do you make time for it? And then we'll transition into how that has created Scratch, the song yes. that nurse will hear after this, after this interview. Well, I've always loved words. Again, I think I get that from my mom. So I'm a fellow words girl. It's always been like puzzles to me, especially if I'm writing with an artist and they're saying a particular story or subject matter that they want to write about. And, you know, the producer's making a beat or a track. I just love the place that my brain goes to, to be like, how can we say this to make it rhythmically fit, but also find the right cadence of words that actually give meaning to this song, not only for people who are going to listen to it, but for this artist that's sitting here, that's going to be singing it like this is their heart on a track. It's a puzzle. So I've kind of, you know, since I started age six, it wasn't great. It was more around age 14 where I'm starting to get a little bit more developed in my songwriting. I think it has always been repetition, repetition, repetition. I mean, like I have always been writing even when the ideas suck, even when I feel like I'm having block. I think journaling has been huge in that. I watch a lot of television and a lot of movies and I am trying to read more because I think reading really helps me. But even being a fan of stories really informs how I write songs and living in Nashville. It's a very narrative songwriting form. So I think just like writing as much as I can with other people solo and then making sure that I'm always keeping the muscle moving with whether it's little short ideas or poems or just journaling every day. I think something that's really helped me in the past couple of years is picking like some weird, obscure title for each journal entry so that if anybody were to read this and be like what the heck happened today what is this like hot feet and cheese curls and then you're like what's going on and then it's like always has something to do with like hey i got sunburned on my foot and then i got cheese curls from trader joe's and we're all like what is that <laughs> but but it's the you know exercising your brain to think of a normal boring story and a fun, engaging way. So those are all things that I've done that have, I think, helped sharpen my songwriting. And I'm just naturally a little quicker, which can get me into trouble. I'm very like Lorelai Gilmore. So I'm like, so it's not always more beneficial, but I do think it helps lend itself a little more to the the sharpness, I guess. Sure. Yeah. There's, there's some, uh, some quick wittedness there. That's, I like it. Let's talk about Scratch and just Scratch. like that song, what it means to you, what the inspiration was for it, producing it, recording it, putting it out there, all of that. Take me through the experience or your experience with Scratch. Yeah. So I think Scratch was the first track that I finished for the first EP I released last year. And it was my first independent EP I had released without being a part of this artist development company I had been a part of for six years. And it was a hard six years. No shame on them. I felt very trapped. And it's not an uncommon story. And I felt like it was really hard to release music, even though I was writing all this music. It was hard to make music and produce it, even though I'm like, I can produce it. It's just everything was harder than it needed to be. And so I thought, man, I'm going to put out a series of EPs, but I want to start with one that feels really triumphant and upbeat and like 
victorious. And so the name of the EP is, is it a comeback if I never left? Because it felt like a comeback to me, but I'm not, I'm not of the notoriety for people to notice that I had been gone. And also I hadn't been gone. I had been releasing music, but it just, it just felt like I had the spark hadn't really been piercing through <laughs> as brightly as in the past. And so Scratch, I believe it's the first track on that EP. It was the first one I wanted people to listen to and being like, whoa. And I wanted to grab their attention immediately and and say, this is not like the old Ivory because old Ivory was more, we were kind of going for a little bit of an Adele sound, more of a classic stripped back basic, but I've always been into really like quirky production things. And so it opens up on like a record scratch and me literally rolling like my lips like, so it's instantly engaging and like, what? And it was just a song that came out of that whole feeling of i just got out of that deal and I kind of was in my sassy like it's you it isn't me like I am out I'm free of that deal and now I want to put out as much music as I can so yeah that kind of was addressing like the past six years of my life feeling like I was being told that things weren't happening because it was on me and I'm like I beg to differ so it is my sassy number and I wanted to I wanted to do all the things that like weren't really commercial so again, just in my sassy era. So it sang really fast. I put all kinds of weird sound effects in there. You'll find like soda pop can opening. You'll find like cash register noises. Milo shook his collar and I just kept it in there. So I was like, that sounds cool. And I, I just had fun. So it's Ivory Uninhibited, that track. And it's why it's one of my favorites. And yeah, I still listen to it a lot on those days where I'm like, this is hard. I feel like I'm starting over. And I'm like, well, at least I'm building it from scratch. And like, it's me behind the wheel. So that's kind of the bare bones behind scratch. It's one of my favorite songs that I've ever written and produced for sure. Well, mine too. I listened to it only about a dozen times on repeat, the hour <laughs> leading up to this interview. So thank you for creating it. And I like the sassy ivory it's nice. Thank you. I do too. I like her. I'm like, stick around. <laughs> I need you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Ivory, this has been such a great conversation. I end every interview with the same question. I usually ask the guests beforehand, before we start recording, if they're the type of person that wants to prepare for a question like this, or if they want me to just drop it on them. But I didn't do that. So <laughs> Drop it. You're just going to have to drop it. Here we go. Cool, cool. So... For the listeners of this podcast who aren't familiar with you or are only you know, about, you know, 45 minutes familiar with you, and also those who are familiar with you, what is the most important thing that you want them to know about Ivory Lane? I want them to know that if I can go after my dreams and if I can keep on keeping on after all the stuff that I've been through, which I know people have been through worse, but I came dangerously close to quitting last year you can too. So people that know me, they never let me give up on my dreams. So anytime I play a song I have called Keep On, I always preface it by saying like, this is a song about me not giving up on my dreams. So whatever you're chasing right now, don't give up. That's what I want you to know. Like whatever you're chasing right now, even if it seems impossible and people are telling you it's not conventional, can't be done. Just I'm living proof. Keep on going. I'm here for you. And I also love writing letters and I have people write me letters all the time. I have a PO box. Um, I can send the info along wow. the PO box here in Nashville. And I think it's easier to go after your dreams when you know that you have other people out there who are also going after theirs. So I hope that whoever's listening is just encouraged by the fact that I'm continuing on doing my dreams and I think they should do the same. So it's my takeaway. Oh, I agree. That's beautiful. Thank you. I feel that came to me as well. So thank you. Good, Nick. Whatever you're working on, I'm like, keep going. I think you're doing an incredible job. And I'm just so honored that you would ask me to be a part of this. I'm glad this came out of that January Milwaukee show. There you in go. Snow, practically. Yeah. Well, I cannot wait for you to come back to Wisconsin. Let me know if and when you are trying to plan some shows. And if I can help Absolutely. in any way, I would love to. And I will say... Madeline does post on my social media for me. So whenever I have a show, whenever I have anything going on, feel free to follow me. 
just know that if you DM me, you're getting Madeline. So, <laughs> so watch your words, everyone. <laughs> right. So write Ivory some postcards, you know, write her some Yes, letters. write me some letters. I would love that. And I do have my PO box listed in my bio. If anyone ever wants to reach out, I also have an email address. If anyone ever wants to reach out to me electronically, but I do not check my socials, though I appreciate you following me. Ivory, you are a treat, my friend. It's so nice to know yeah. you do. You uh, as well. We could talk for hours, but for the listener's sake, you know, maybe we'll have to do that sometime off the microphone. But thank you so much for chatting with me and sharing your perspective and your story and just your gifts with the world. It's been great. Thank you, Nick. And thank you for listening. Thank you for doing what you're doing. I think it's awesome. Thanks for listening to the Musicians Venture Podcast. Please leave ratings and reviews from wherever you're listening from. Check us out online at themusiciansventure.com for more information on what we have happening, to find past episodes, and ways to get in touch with us. Find us on social media at The Musicians Venture on Facebook and Instagram, and at Musician Venture on Twitter. Like and follow us on all those platforms, and hey, while you're there, engage with and share our content with your friends. The Musician's Venture Podcast is hosted by me, Nick O'Brien, with guest host appearances from Allison M. The podcast is produced by Shannon Coulard, with theme music by Mike Newmeyer. Thanks again for listening.